it's kind of meta because when you're creating, you can pause and observe things that fuel the creativity. But also when you lose track of your creative self, I don't think you'll get it back unless you pause and make that observation. You're listening to Good is in the Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates, all with help for an improved life, a better life, a good life. Rudy, you're always pausing to think about that. Well, I'm trying to think how this show applies to living a better life. And I think an, exa- I think an examined life is a wonderful life. And here we do two things. We examine part of my past as a musician and a friend and somebody who apparently had some major influence on a rock star, if you will, an indie rock star who is our guest. Our guest today is an old friend from high school, not Servite, but from my high school days, Rich Balling, who was in some pretty well-known bands, uh, The Sound of Animals Fighting, who are going back out on tour in April. They just ended one tour. They're going back on another tour. He was also in the Pharmaceutical Bandits, a very well-known Orange County ska band from the late 1990s, early 2000s, who serves as an education consultant today, but who had a very long career in public school education. In the first half of the show, we talk about music choices in life, paths in life, my my life path, his life path, where we diverged, where everything happened. And we talk about education. And we talk about, quite honestly, some very sad things about some problems in education today, the problems of, of um, delinquent reading and what path that takes for, for a child's life if you kind of give up on children early on in life and where they wind up. We learn that Prisons, private prisons, public prisons actually sometimes get built based upon data of how poor children read. And just some, you know, some great things we learn about this up during this episode and some, quite frankly, some sad things, but sad things that I hope will turn around because we talk about the power of creativity in education. We talk about thinking, thinking differently of how we educate our children. We talk differently about equity in education. This episode's got a lot. I'm very nostalgic. This is somebody who's near and dear to me that I reconnected with late in life, that I learned that you know our friendship, however brief it was in those early years, we had an impact on each other. So Rich has made my life better and I have, I have made his life better. And hopefully through this episode, we can make children's lives better because we really want to change education and, and the thinking behind it. So I'm very proud of this episode. I, I am. Yeah. Read to your kids. That's what I was thinking about. You know, there's, I read, Zadie and I read every single night. We've got books. I let her choose them. And um, now she holds them up and she tries to read the words herself. But that is a habit that was instilled with me. It's one of my favorite memories of my father. He would bring home two copies of the same book and we would take turns reading them out loud to each other. And our first one was, I think it was Treasure Island. And there's times, I'm not going to lie, where I'm tired and I'm like, oh, let's just do one book or can we maybe skip it? Maybe somehow she won't notice. But after listening to this, I'm like, nope, nope, we're going to we're gonna do it. This isn't about me. This is about her. So parents, even when you're tired, go ahead and take the time to read. But I also learned, you know, that I also have had an impact on Rich's life. And I feel like that is one of the bigger points that you just glossed over here, Rudy. And I'm sure that I'm offended on Rich's behalf. You, you have had had an impact on his life. He has been a fan. <laughs> it's amazing to have a friend who's a who's a fan of the show who I've reached out to as kind of a consultant. Remember I talked to you when our, on our episodes on book banning. He's a Texas educator that was dealing with book banning. He's the person I talked to. So I love the fact that we're given back by having a good fan a good friend, musician, an educator, somebody who's having positive impact on children's lives. I'm very happy with this episode. I hope everybody enjoys it. Yeah, this is one of those episodes. I mean, we enjoy all of our episodes, but definitely when it ended, you and I were texting each other being like, man, that was really good. That was really good. Okay. 100%. So let's talk. What what are we going to call this one? The Rockstar Educator or was Find a Rule and Break It? Here we go. Gwen, I would like you to meet a very old and dear friend of mine, Mr. Rich Baller. Hi, Rich. Hey, Gwen. Good to meet you. <laughs> nice it's to an, meet it's you. an honor to meet you. 
and you've actually uh, you've actually helped me quite a bit. There have been a few phrases in recent episodes that I've really internalized. And the yes. most recent, yeah, the most recent one was when you're stuck, think of a rule and break it. And I don't think it was your quote. I think you were quoting somebody, mm-hmm. but I had never heard that before. And uh, looking back on my own creativity, I think, A, I've actually done that before and not known it. And B, going forward, when this happens, I'm going to remember break a rule because that 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 speaks to me grant i just came up with a perfect title for this episode breaking rules with rich <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. there you go man that's a that's a good one man that's a nice. really really good one that was with the that was on the screenwriting and i think it was yes. i wrote a short story i think called um a girl named cliche from it was a flash fiction and it was because i was thinking about that that's what came out well that's really cool thank you so how do you and rudy know each other Rudy and I, uh, we had mutual friends way, way back in the day when we were both sort of playing music in the garage and dipping our toes in the punk rock, you know, whatever. Every local scene had its little cluster of punkers playing punk rock music. And uh, he was in a band I really looked up to. All of us did. All my friend group looked up to his band. And he ended up leaving that band. And we sort of... I don't know how talked him into joining our band and way back, way back then he was the savvy networker that he is now. (laughs) I mean, he was getting us shows at clubs that we previously couldn't get a return call from. He was figuring out how to get us a drummer when we needed a drummer, how to get a practice space when we needed a practice space, all the things that young struggling bands need Rudy was figuring it out. So he was like, better call Saul before Saul. Oh, my God, dude. That is the oh – I swear I'm going to start crying. That's the nicest thing anyone has ever, has ever said to me because I've, I've told all of my friends who, ask, who that ask, what's the greatest show that depicts what's it really like to be a lawyer? And I said, forget every show in the world. There's only one you need to watch, and it's Better Call Saul. Not because of the criminal element, because in order to be a successful lawyer, you must, within the rules, break rules. You must think outside the box. You must constantly be networking. You must constantly need need to be connecting people. Dude, that is the greatest compliment I have ever received. One really quick little adjustment to the story. I was yeah. kicked out of the band by our dear friend, Darren. <laughs> he and I, you know, had a, had a rough patch there for almost 30 years. Over the COVID pandemic, we got back together. We hugged it out. He apologized. And he told me something that was very, very nice. He said, the worst thing I ever did to my musical career was kick you out of the band. I said, what are you talking about? Dude, you're one of the greatest musicians I've ever met. He goes, bro, you're, first of all, you're a phenomenal bass player, but I needed the networking marketing brains. I didn't have that. That was all on my shoulders. And and that hurt for 20 years. It was all on my shoulders and it eventually crumbled. Like I needed you to take that onto your back and run with it. So the band that that I went and I joined Rich with and our other good friend, Joe Enriquez, and and I also brought a Servite kid, Dave Ellis, into the band when he was a year below us. It was my revenge band. I said, all right, I got kicked out of one of the greatest punk rock bands in in like, you know, this little area of LA County, Orange County. I'm yeah. going to I'm gonna beat that band by by getting us into all of the best venues in Southern California. And I did it. For sure. It taught me something. It taught me when I put my mind to something, no matter what obstacle is ahead of me, I will achieve it with passion. So, dude, thank you for bringing up that story. Now, here's where things diverge. I went on to college. I eventually, you know, I joined a couple of bands in college. First two years of college, I was hardcore into punk. You know, wound up the last band I was in was left out. We recorded an album and I said, I'm done. I'm committing my life to the law. Right. Mm-hmm. And I did the law thing. You can hear a bunch of episodes. The law thing worked out great. But eventually I had to get back into the creative arts in order to bring back happiness. You, on the other hand, had an amazing musical career after you and I broke up and even after the bands that you were in that Dragon Repellent, you know, kind of formed into. You were in pharmaceutical bandits. You were in a whole bunch of other bands. Like, tell us a little bit about your life after high school and into music and eventually becoming an educator. Yeah, for sure. You know, what's interesting is a quick thank you to you because I never thought about this before, but like 
in that era of my life, you getting us, our small little garage band into those venues gave me a taste of what it was like to perform for even 20 people. And that, my friend, is like a drug that I've been chasing for the last 25 years or whatever. I'm, I'm your first pusher? I'm your first pusher? That's another nice thing. You hear all these nice things yeah, that, that we're hearing I, I, I about think me and Gwen? I, I think wow. that's where that's where it all started, for better or for worse, and it's been a blessing and a curse ever since. But I don't I don't regret anything, you know. So yeah, I I had kind of a an interesting trajectory for a while, and it ended and went to education. And similarly to your pursuit of law, and I'll get to that in a second. But just briefly, um, after our time together, yeah, you know, I was a band nerd from fourth grade all the way up until college. And so when ska music was big, being in Southern California, it was just a natural entryway. When I saw a classified ad that a band needed a trombone player, that was it, you know, and that ended up being the RX Bandits. And we started touring and we got a record deal. And that that was just more catalyst, more impetus to like chase this feeling of, you know, all my insecurities go away when people think I'm important for 30 minutes and then I'm willing to drive eight more hours to the next city for 30 more people to think I'm important for 30 minutes. And so it's God, just, that's awesome. yeah, throughout that time too, there was uh, other little things that my trombone got me. Like I got to play on the Bloodhound Gang's album, Hooray for Boobies, which as silly as that sounds, that album went platinum in 13 countries. So the the song, you know, that Discovery Channel song that was huge at the turn of the century, You and Me Baby Ain't Nothing But Mammals, that one. I'm not on that song, unfortunately, but I am on the album. And during my tracking of my parts for that album, I was messing up so much that I was just really frustrating myself. I started cursing the microphone and that ended up being kept as an extra track on the album. Remember when you used to buy CDs and there was like silent tracks till you got to like track 23 and then there was like a hidden track? Yep. The, the hidden track ended up being me cursing the microphone or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> on, the, yeah. on the platinum record. On the platinum <laughs> on, record. On the platinum record, which Dude. is super fun. Um, but yeah, ska music really got me around, got the network going. And this is where, after about seven years of touring all over the United States and Europe, I had this feeling that, you know, I don't know if it was just fear or what, just being raised in a family that, you know, you go to college, you take care of business, you make responsible decisions, right? And after being in a van with the same group of dudes, day in and day out, at some point, you start to question your life choices and think, what if this band dream doesn't work out? What am I going to do? Well, education had always been something I was interested in, thanks to my seventh and eighth grade English teacher, who I think every educator can probably trace back their journey to some teacher that inspired them, right? I started getting into that. And one day backstage at the Fillmore in San Francisco, it was a sold out show. We were opening for Newfound Glory. I was in RX Bandits at the time. And I remember telling the band like, hey, I got to finish college. And so long story short, went to college, uh, Cal State Long Beach, got a bachelor's degree in English education, did my student teaching in Huntington Park uh, at Huntington Park High School, which is where they filmed the original Grease movie in uh central la and uh nice really... music connection there very good i like that <laughs> yeah. i see it yeah so fast forward through the future i'm going to college working at hot topic i notice that hot topic doesn't have you know they have everything music related shirts pins stickers paraphernalia whatever but they didn't have any books and so that's what led me to throughout my years touring, tap into that network that I had met over the years and say, hey, let's make a poetry book. Ended up calling it Revolution on Canvas, got a book deal with Time Warner, put out two volumes of that book, and it's a collection of poetry from people in bands. And uh, most of it's terrible. But really... Uh, <laughs> uh, come on uh, now, come on, yeah. man, come on, come on. 
a lot of it was me chasing down bands after they would get off stage and say, hey, remember me? We toured together in Arizona, blah, blah, blah. Hey, let's go to this Denny's. You could write down some, some words on a napkin and I can use it as a poem, you know, in this book. And anyway, it was really cool, though, and empowering because we got lots of fan mail at the time from people buying the book that were saying, you know, this is the first time I was ever excited about a book, this and that. It tapped into a demographic that a lot of other things didn't. So that was called Revolution on Canvas. There was volumes one and two. At this point, it's like a $2 buy on uh, Amazon. But that was further empowerment to just continue to chase the next thing and the next thing. And it also gave me a taste of, hey, you can go to college and be responsible, but also keep following this music thing. And so then that led into further studio projects. Meanwhile, I'm getting a master's degree. I get that in education administration. So I'm teaching English for 15, 16 years, end up doing a assistant principal gig for about four, then on to an associate principal. And now I'm an education consultant, which takes me off of a central campus. But uh, long story short, I help fix struggling schools by training struggling teachers and still do music because the guys in that first band, RX Bandits, play with me in The Sound of Animals Fighting, which just did three uh, weeks of tour, very successful dates uh, where I saw you last. That's sort of a messy thing, but along the way, I taught special ed, I taught middle school, I was adjunct faculty at Cal State Fullerton doing uh, music business for their College of Communications, taught AP literature, was a content director for English at a charter district. So I've done all the things because I also have a family and I need a steady paycheck. And music, unfortunately, doesn't always bring a consistent, predictable stream of income. But something that you've said in previous episodes, Rudy, is just, uh, you know, this idea of being unhappy when you lose touch with your creative self. That resonates with me. An adjacent comment from from Gwendolyn. Do you do you prefer Gwendolyn or Gwen? <laughs> Everybody calls me Gwen, but I like the sound of my name. I like Gwendolyn. I like all the syllables. <laughs> it's yeah. the first time I've ever heard. It's the first time I've ever heard her say heard the name Gwendolyn. So and it's and she's obviously giddy over it. I say <laughs> I go actually, with Gwendolyn. Well, I, feel, yeah. I feel kind of sheepish uh, about it because everybody says Gwen. But everybody is just in the habit of shortening somebody's name. I'm going to start calling you Rue, you know? I think that works. Yeah, which, yeah. which you're the first – Gwen, how many <laughs> – we, we're well over 100 episodes. Nobody has even bothered to ask you how you want your name to be said. <laughs> Look at this gentleman I bring onto this show. I mean, this is phenomenal. I'm kind of curious about the education, Rich. But, Rich, keep keep going. What you said – you were about, yeah, you were about well, to I say that be. I said something brilliant. I'm pretty sure that was like – Yes. That's absolutely, she loves that too. She loves that. So the adjacent comment uh, that's related from, from Gwendolyn is this idea that creativity is essentially the ability to pause and observe. And that resonates with me because I don't even know if you remember saying that, but, um, but you did. And it's true. It's true on multiple levels. It's, it's kind of meta because when you're creating, you can pause and observe things that fuel the creativity but also when you lose track of your creative self i don't think you'll get it back unless you pause and make that observation either like just in a meta context but so yeah i was you know i'm constantly throughout my career in education have been trying to compartmentalize my two lives because on one hand especially as a young teacher I was always thinking, you know, if I could tell stories about my band days, maybe I'll connect better with the kids and maybe I'll make like some sort of bigger impact as someone that feels more real. Man, that's a really, really good point. I mean, one of the reasons why is I know this is going to sound crazy, but some of my friends who have older kids, not kids that are like teenagers yet, like some kids are like eight or nine or 10. And actually, even even a little kid in like my daughter's like kindergarten or, or whatever class, I actually connect with the kids through my love of film. Like they actually, like some of the kids like yeah. talk to their parents are like, hey, we really, you know, Elsa's dad or Alex's dad, we, can you bring him around more? Because he, you know, we, we start talking about film and he starts telling us about this type of stuff. I actually do find it a lot easier to connect with the young 
through, you know, passion for creative art. So I can, I can totally see that. Yeah, for sure. But I was kind of, I was teaching in a more conservative leaning district. And so I was always afraid that if I revealed what kind of band I was in or things like that, you know, I just didn't want people, I didn't need people Googling me and then parents that don't understand rock music, you know, all of a sudden I'm like the new Chuck Berry or Marilyn Manson or something. So I kept it compartmentalized and uh, that's a weird kind of lonely place to be. And so at some point, one of those things gets sacrificed when they're not married. And so because of the family and the nine to five as an educator, I really sort of leaned into that because it was who I was most of the day, every day, despite initially being attracted to education because it gave me some breathing room to keep creating art on the side. And so, yeah, when you become disconnected, you hopefully people find their way back like you did. I feel like I did and it took a while and it was just in this last year when I decided at 45 to just like pour all of my emotional and financial resources into like one last run. Because truthfully, I feel like I'm in a bit of a midlife crisis. I feel like I'm at an age where I'm questioning, am I too old to do X, Y, Z? And am I too young to do X, Y, Z? And I don't know how to be or what to be. And everything feels like it has an expiration to it. Like I'm worried that if I don't make my impact or my legacy in music now, that it's going to be never. And then I'm going to just sulk as like an old man for the following, you know? <laughs> I, I, I'm starting to observe this a little bit. Gen Xers, right, dude? We're, we're, we three are Gen Xers. The yeah. way that we are going through our midlife crisis is way different than yeah. the boomers. The boomers bought the Porsche or the boomers bought the this or they got the divorce or they got that. And they tried to fill things up with material goods. At least, not all boomers. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I'm referring to stuff on the movies. I am talking to way more yeah. people of our generation that come to me. They probably come to you and say, man, I love that you're getting back into the creative stuff. I love that you're doing this. I love that you're chasing these passions yet are able to keep your job. Like what's going on? I, part, part of it was like, well kind of suffered a little bit of a midlife crisis. I saw how unhappy I was and I figured out a way to like address it. And that's through creativity. You're doing the same thing. I mean, Gwen, is the reason why you do Good Is In The Details podcast, is this your midlife crisis as well? I know I know you have some questions for Rich, but I'm, I'm just curious. Have you ever thought about that conceptually? That is such an interesting observation. You are right. I mean, the, the midlife crisis from the previous generation was material stuff or women just getting a haircut. And now it's just this yearning for meaning and for creativity. And I have to tell you, so I saw not too long ago a family photo of when I was a little girl and my parents, and I realized that in the photo, my mom, I am older than my mom was in that photo. And yet my mom looks much older like what 40 looked like for her generation is completely different for now. And so Gen Xers are also aging differently because we see that there's so much more creativity. Like we're not confined to some sort of a box as to what our role is. There's been this movement and rejection. And so of being confined to roles. And so I think we're also aging differently. And that's why it's possible in your mid 40s to be like, I'm going to go back to creativity. But I think, you're, you know, no, you're right. I mean, for good as in the details, there was a part of me that was like, I just want to do more with my life. I love reading philosophy. I love teaching philosophy. I just had suspected that there was more to do with it than the confines of the university classroom. Let's be fair to the boomers, too. I don't want to overly pick on them. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have look look what we're able to no, do. Yeah. Rich is right outside of sure. Dallas. You're down in Fullerton. I'm over here in Manhattan Beach. We're able to sit here and have a conversation and record it, package it up and send it out to the world. Like I'm trying to be fair to the boomers. They didn't have the opportunities that we do. They had a whole bunch of other opportunities that they effed up, but we're not gonna talk about that. <laughs> just just joking, boomers. But I do think 
we Gen Xers who are still learning this technology because we didn't grow up with it, thank God. I don't think I don't think we'd be the people who we are. The most important, the integral generation between the the linchpin between the prior generations and the younger generations to bring us all together and move us forward in the world. But for we do have this technology and we're repackaging our lives, re reforming our lives in a positive way, and that's why I'm just constantly. There's a lot of themes on good as in the details. One of them is the key to creativity, the key to, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the key to happiness is creativity. That's where I think that that path is. And now a quick break to tell you about our friends at Newsly. Newsly is an all-in-one audio super app for iOS and Android. It picks up on the top trending articles on the web on topics you choose at any given moment and reads them to you in a natural human voice. The entire web becomes listenable for the first time, all in one place. Browse articles from topics you choose and start playing. Stop scrolling and start listening. You can follow any topic like music, education, philosophy, transportation. And they have podcasts as well. You can listen to Good is in the Details. Download and use Newsly for free now from www.newsly.me or from the link that we'll have in the show notes. Use offer code the details, and I'll also put that in the show notes. And now back to the show. Rich, you're in education. You're now an education consultant. What, what does the educational system that you've worked in? Does it recognize the power of creativity? Is there a complete disconnect between, and I'm not, I mean, I'm taking an expansive view of creativity. Do they see the importance of social media? Do they see the importance of like learning, video editing, acting, the arts? Like what's going on on the educational side that's wrong that, that you think can be fixed or what, and what do you think cannot be fixed? There is a lot going on. It's a very tumultuous situation out there in the educational landscape for sure. Let's see where to begin. In terms of creativity, here's the thing is day in and day out, kids walk into school every day. They don't know, they may not know that they're asking this question, but they're asking, why am I here? And the battle for relevancy at school is the biggest battle that educators face trying to make school feel relevant. Why are kids coming when everything they need is in their smartphone from their perspective, right? Like anything they need can be done on their phone. They really don't feel like they need to lean on physics skills they they learn in physics or AP Lit or any of these classes. So it's very hard to convince them that they need to sit still, behave, and do their work, right? But most educators that I encounter on a day-to-day basis are still, you know, I don't know how they all fall into the profession necessarily, but you know, they're of the mindset that you're coming into class, you should behave, you should sit still and just, we've got work to do, right? Well, you're never going to win that number one battle <laughs> that I just talked about. And there's so much inequity, man. Like my, my number one gig as a consultant is dealing with high quality instructional materials. And why that's a thing right now is because uh, the landscape of who is working in schools has changed so drastically, especially since the pandemic. You've got so many people who have retired early. You've got teachers coming in because it's like the last chance for employment, <laughs> or you've got ex-bankers who have decided they're going to go and teach, but maybe they're not certified. They're, they're loading up the charter schools with these people that aren't necessarily qualified. They're underpaid. It is a really interesting time to be in education, right? And so if you can't necessarily promise that you've got the top-notch human beings of the world leading the classroom, how do you ensure kids are getting quality education? The only answer right now is the resources that are being used. So in other words, take on the logic that no matter who's in the room, if the lesson is high quality because it is coming from a vetted resource that is high quality, then the kids have a fighting chance, regardless of who the teacher is. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean that that's, it works that easily. But 
what we're finding is and what's really driving this conversation of inequities there was a there was a study pre-pandemic that's now called the opportunity myth and the opportunity myth uh basically canvassed all kinds of classrooms all kinds of lessons interviewed all kinds of kids what they found was 88 percent of the time kids were doing activities related to the class 71 percent of the time the kids were doing what they were asked to do, bringing home A's and B's, doing all the things, yet in the end, only 17% of those kids could demonstrate mastery on something like a basic benchmark or a state exam, right? So the question becomes, how do you get all these kids doing what they're asked to do in class, bringing home A's and B's, but this gap exists that shows that despite their performance in class, they're not mastering skills. Why is that happening? And what the answer is, at least in this study and many others that have followed, is just that they're not receiving work that is on grade level. I know that sounds almost deceptively simple, but it really, really hits hard in lower socioeconomic groups, minorities, students of color. What's happening is you get a group of kids and a teacher that has assumptions. And the kids come into the room, the teacher makes assumptions about where they're at. And instead of towing the line and teaching them on grade level, you've got teachers taking the mindset, oh, these kids are low. I'm going to teach them where they're at. And then they never leave that place. So if you have a third grade kid coming in, functioning at a first grade level, you've got teachers teaching them at a kinder or a first grade level and never weaning them off of that or taking too long to wean them off of that. And so, yeah, they're mastering that stuff, but they're not mastering their own grade level. And so when it comes to demonstrating what they sh- where they should be at as a third grader, they can't do it. And what's really interesting is, and <laughs> this is a 20, 2020 or 2018 or 2020 statistic that Basically, 60% of kids in America are not proficient readers. 60% of fourth graders, rather, specifically, fourth graders are not proficient readers in America, right? And what's interesting about that is because there's an adjacent study and research that shows that if you are not a proficient reader by the time you're in third grade, your chances of being a poor reader the rest of your life and being indoctrinated into the justice system, the criminal justice system, and poverty in general skyrocket, right? Like it is a predictor. This is how crazy it is right here. This is real right here. This might blow your mind if you're unfamiliar with this stuff, but there are prisons that are built, not solely, but in part based on data from third grade test scores. That is a true, this is a true thing. So, okay. So if you take like a community and you've got data that is showing that kids are just repeatedly year after year after year, not demonstrating proficiency in reading and other academic scores by the time they're fourth graders, that data is taken into account when especially private prisons are being constructed and planned and decided deciding where they're going to be oh, built this that is one is, of the craziest this is a statistic this is data that is taking I, and you know and you know what you know what you know what's crazy yeah this it is absolutely i swear to you i because i've always yeah. wondered that i always have wondered how the hell do they come up with where they build private prisons like seriously i've had that because the reason why is because yeah. some private prisons are built with municipal bonds. There's a little like nerdy bond connection there. I don't work in that area. Some of my colleagues do. Yeah. So I've never actually gotten behind there and looked at the data as to, well, why are you building it here? And what Rich is saying is, oh, well, this is one of the reasons yeah, why they sure. build it here. And it's not the only reason, but it is data that is considered. And that is absolute fact. Most educators that have been around in like the secondary school area, like high school, middle school, they can tell you that they've they've seen this, like that this is something that occurs. That's wild. And that affects, again, low socioeconomic students of color. Um, these are things that 
really just hit that community super hard and can create this cycle that is extremely difficult to get out of. And when people say, when they question phrases like institutional racism or systemic or systematic racism, I mean, you can't get any more definitive than that with this sort of thing when you're looking at these kids as future commodities for your prison. You have, that's insane. You, you have floored. You have floored Gwen. I know. I'm that just Gwen like... is, those wheels are those wheels are turning. I could see it in her eyes right now. She is. She is. She is. She's floored. I think, right, Gwen, White yeah. Gwendolyn. I'm sorry, Gwendolyn. <laughs> well, I would imagine some of this also hinges on parents and on reading at home. If parents aren't reading, I don't want to put everything on teachers and on schools because this is also something that. You know, people do if so. If people have just, I think Americans overall have just lost this desire for reading, and everybody is 100%. on their phone more. But it just brings home the point to me that the importance of reading that they show that you know with novels. If somebody's wondering, like, what is the relevancy of reading The Great Gatsby? I'm not going to use that on a job interview or something like that. Or 1984. I'm not going to use that on a job interview. But the point is that reading it is enhancing it enhances empathy yeah. better than any let's say philosopher i think could in ethics you're not going to start to be a good person after reading immanuel kant but maybe if you're reading stories and moral tales then that enhances empathy it's that quietness that allows for contemplation and the way in which your mind can i mean i tell my students all the time reading is absolutely fascinating and what it can do because you have this small window of the way you can experience the world just based on the facts of your existence, the geography, the time, your gender, your ethnicity, your first language, your religion. Mm -hmm. But when you read, you have this opportunity that is totally human and unique to actually see the world, get a glimpse of the world from somebody else's point of view. And that is what it means to be human. And that's astonishing. And we have just culturally, I think, lost a sense of the significance of reading. It also helps with logic. You read an Agatha Christie book. I mean, you got to keep track of all of the characters and who's doing what. You know, I just am so sad by this statistic because in this desire for everything to be so fast paced and information seems to be trumping the notion of education and knowledge and information and knowledge are not the same thing. And that seems to be the direction that we're going. Yeah, and there's a couple of interesting things to run to what you just said. And that is, well, first of all, yeah, with, when it comes to teachers, make no mistake. I believe that 99.9% .9 of them wake up every day with the intention of doing a great job. And I do not put the onus of this on to them. This is very much a system issue. And what I mean by that is teachers are essentially at this point being told what they're supposed to teach, right? And a lot of those are based on state standards and state standards are often compiled by groups of people that are made up of large amounts of people that aren't even educators. You know, here in Texas, we've got all kinds of people from different walks of life that come together and put their heads together to decide what kids should know and what they you know, and, and to that point, Rich, you, you're the person – sorry to interrupt, but really quick, Gwen, just so you know a little bit of background, I've actually referred to Rich on past episodes. Do you remember the book banning episodes when I reached out to an educator in Texas? Mm -hmm. That was Rich. I talked to Rich about that last year. We were in Vegas, and I told him, hey, we're right about to record an episode on book banning. What can you tell me? And he, he gave me some great examples. Sorry, Rich. Just wanted to give you some credit. No, for sure. And, and so this, this first comment is about books. So I like what you said. You know, you, you mentioned the great Gatsby, Agatha Christie, things like that. Well, what's happened over the last 10 years is, um, it has been decided by the powers that be that with the skill driven mindset, kids need to learn skills and we don't need to, uh, read a 300 page novel in order to teach, let's say the skill of inference or reading comprehension skill, or writing a thesis, whatever it may be, you don't need to go through the entire novel. Now, I disagree with that because like what you just mentioned, along with other things like just following a character over an arc and learning from their 
conflicts and their problems and solutions uh, benefits you, especially if you're a kid growing up now when you're in a Twitter bubble and you're exposed to very limited points of view. If you're in a lower socioeconomic area, you're probably not traveling much. You may have never even been into a museum. And so reading a novel is a way of getting a glimpse of the arc of someone's life, the consequences of their choices. There's all kinds of things that you can pick up from there. But learning has become very, like, it's in silos. We're, we're teaching a checklist of skills. So rarely is there an opportunity to read a whole novel, in this case, in your, your average English class. There's that, but then there's also this idea of skills versus knowledge. So now people are starting to rediscover the fact that kids can't just learn skills by themselves because they need it to fit into their schema and they need to understand, uh, they need to have some background knowledge to really learn the skill. And so now you're looking at these, uh, the systemic problems inherent in state testing. And so, if you are a kid and what you're being told is uh, learning these reading comprehension skills XYZ are what's important, and then you're going to a state test to demonstrate your ability to master that skill, but the passage you're given is all about baseball. Let's say you're one of the many, many, many English language learners in the United States and you just struggle with reading in general, or you are a kid who just has no idea about baseball. You don't know what winding up means or shortstop. You don't know these terms, right? So what are you being tested on exactly on this state exam? Are you being tested on your knowledge of baseball or are you being tested on the skill, which is the whole point of the exam, right? So you've got kids at a disadvantage if they don't know baseball in that particular example. So like in 1988, there was a study done where a group of researchers gathered a, a group of students and read them a passage on baseball. It was like a nice substantial paragraph um, on baseball and then had them reenact it. The question for you guys is who do you think did the best in this reenactment? Was it the kids that could read well or the kids that had high knowledge of baseball? The kids that had high knowledge of baseball. But here's what's really interesting. If you were to put this data on a bar graph, okay, you've got high knowledge of baseball, high reading level, high reading level, low knowledge of baseball, low and low, right? And high and low. So what's interesting is the kids that had a high knowledge of baseball and a low reading level were almost as successful as the kids that were high knowledge, high reading level. In other words, whether you are a high reader or a low reader doesn't matter. What determines your success in this scenario is your knowledge of baseball. So you take these kids, you test them, you've got to make sure that the playing field is level. So in 2014, there was another test. This is the famous test called the WUG test. And what they took is they took high socioeconomic kiddos and low socioeconomic kiddos, and there was a big gap in their ability to respond to these test questions about birds. And so then they changed the birds involved to a fiction, the WUG, right? They called this bird the WUG, right? And all of a sudden, it like neutralized your need to know anything specific about anything and just tested the skill because no longer are we talking about baseball, which you may or may not know about. No longer are we talking about a specific bird that you may or may not know about. This is just a wug. And the gap between the high socioeconomic kiddos and the low socioeconomic kiddos virtually disappeared. The point of all of that is saying we've got to be careful... <laughs> about our assumptions of kids. We've gotta be careful of how we're testing their, assessing their intelligence, essentially. Because if you say that you're testing their ability to read, but that hinges on their ability, how much they know about baseball, and then they walk away 
having to deal with the fact that they failed a test that they thought measured their basic capacity as a ninth grader or whatever, you know? So it's just wild how, how unbalanced and often unfair and quite frankly, discriminatory these practices are in education. And we have to be really careful. Why isn't it the instinct, this just seems counterintuitive to me, that if somebody is in the third grade, but they're performing at a first grade level, why isn't the instinct to give that child more attention to bring them up instead of ignore them? Like, wouldn't that be where your attention would focus more? Yeah. So this is where there's, you know, different research and different trends in education. And one one trend and one researcher that's still super popular all over North America is Lucy Calkins. And Lucy Calkins is a proponent of, you know, lit circles and sort of student-centered um, instruction, but it's a certain kind. It's the kind that kind of presupposes that kids show up to your class already decent readers and can essentially lead themselves in the learning. So what happens is if you get a large amount of kids in your class where English is a second language, they will not be successful in this whole group environment that's supposed to be led by kids with the presumption that they already are decent readers. They have to have small group instruction. They have to have learning centers with a teacher table and like rotations where they're exposed to smaller groups to really stamp the learning. And so you look at what's popular, you look at what is driven by the majority, and then that's where the counterintuitive stuff happens. Uh, we are kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. There are essentially three major tiers of instruction. And tier one is you get you know, you're supposed to get stuff done in the classroom, but there is an intuitive part of teaching that I think this is the one place where onus does fall on the teacher. There are some times where uh, there's an intuitive piece where if they're not coached properly by their district or their curriculum departments of their district or their, their instructional coaches on their campuses, those teachers are really going to struggle because you can't just pick up that intuitive piece. So when you're handed 30 kids, this huge spectrum of ability, it is really easy for someone that doesn't know how to ebb and flow with the room to just sort of give everyone the same assignment and hope it goes well. I want to ask a question. This is something that's been on my mind with the political climate right now. And I am wondering if there, if you couldn't speak to the broader idea of what is meant by education, because I am wondering if the debates is that there's not even understanding of what constitutes education in the first place. This has been on my mind because I've been thinking about, um, it was actually the response to the State of the Union address and this discussion about woke indoctrination. And the notion of woke in Socrates' trial, he refers to himself as a gadfly stinging the Athenians out of their slumber. The philosopher Descartes wrote about if he didn't ask questions, he would be like a captive and a slave and he would be asleep. And it's made me think about the very nation. And, and then, of course, the yeah. notion of woke at this time is meant to awakening oneself to injustices. And so the idea of woke and indoctrination sounds to me like a married bachelor. They're actually incongruous ideas. But the fact that that is a topic, that that is a speaking point, tells me that there is this fundamental disagreement about the nature of education, that in part, we want to replenish our citizens give information that is known. But the second part of education is to examine the method and the assumptions that brought us to that knowledge in the first place. And the education is a continuing process. Indoctrination is when you stop at point one, just information and nothing else. But that education is uncomfortable, as Socrates told us, as Descartes told us, and as we're learning now, because we are questioning everything it is that we think we know. So I'm just wondering, what are some of your thoughts about, do we have an agreement about what is education in the first place? That is, the question you raise is the ultimate question. This is like 
existential. It's at the core of what's going on in education right now, straight up. Like, I believe at some point we gave too much power to the non-educating, the non-educator stakeholders involved. And, and I'm trying to be a little PC about this. So like, I would never go into my doctor's office and like tell him how or her, how this surgery is going to go, right? I just, I'm not going to do that, that because I've not been trained and I'm not going to, but in our journey to want to partner with the community, with parents, teachers, administrators, students, and give everybody a voice in the room, there has been a loss of trust in the teacher as a professional, the fact that they have gone through pedagogical training and they understand the science of teaching and they're a professional that should be trusted. And so what is happening is this, I believe kids are often sent to school with the intention that they'll both learn information and also essentially be raised, <laughs> right? And taught values. But the irony is the minute the values that are being taught slightly go against the grain of any of the other stakeholders involved, the pitchforks come out, right? And because we live in a society where at the most primitive level, I could say, if you're not happy with your pizza, all you got to do is call and say, hey, I don't like this pizza and you get it for free. There's this level of customer service that's like societal at this point that transfers into things like school where I sent my kid to you and I don't like the pizza. So I need you to do something different because I say so, even though I have no idea how to manage a room of 30 kids learning at different levels, right? So like, I think that there is a large disparity in perspectives when it comes to what should education be. I think that you've got teachers and parents both sort of all over the map. Some that feel like they're coming there to learn skills and I should be able to send them home and they should be able to do some work in partnership with their parents, you know? But now we are getting to a place where we can't trust that the kids will do their work when they go home because there are no parents that are present or even if they're home, they might be scrolling through their phone and assume that the school is doing all the heavy lifting. Regardless, there's all of these stakeholders making assumptions about the other stakeholders and there's a lot of blaming passed around and a lot of projecting going on and it's brought us to a head really where I don't know what the future of education is going to look like. I wake up every morning trying to help improve things the best I can. But, you know, with this dissension amongst the stakeholder ranks and the chatbot technology and the battle of relevancy that's already happening where kids are like, why am I even here? I would not be surprised if education looks entirely different in 10 years. If you had a magic wand and there would be something that could be a fix, let's say tomorrow. I would say my knee-jerk reaction, and this might, this might be naive, but I just really feel like if we could close Pandora's box with the devices at school, it would be great. Like I understand in a perfect world, cell phones and everything are now part of our fabric, right? And so because of that, we should be able to successfully integrate that into school and use it as a tool. But in the end, the truth is more immature brains largely have a hard time controlling themselves with the use of devices, at least when they're supposed to versus when they should have them put away. And it's really become a struggle. So now a lot of schools find themselves implementing these policies where They've got the calculator holders on the wall. And as soon as kids walk into class, they've got to put their phone up. But that's a huge battle that a teacher now has to fight. And you've got the liability if a phone breaks. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that has just come with, you know, there are plenty of ways to get kids engaged that don't involve the phone. Most districts at this point have computer access. Even if it's not a one-to-one, -one, there's computer labs, there's, there's carts with laptops. 
there are ways to engage kids in the learning that don't just have them sitting in rows and reading and writing, you know, in a rote way. So I would just love to see a world where we could go back and remove that distraction and all of the social pressure that goes with it, you know. I know that you can't really control that stuff like Snapchat, for instance, like what happens after school hours, but uh, that's just not, it, it, the stuff that goes on during school hours is wildly inappropriate too, so. That's hard because I think people who did not grow up with a phone, whenever they hear about something like cyberbullying, they don't understand like, oh, I was a kid and I was bullying. Bullying's always been around. But the difference is yeah, that yeah. with the phone, that would impact how you go to school. Because I know as a little girl, anytime I got teased, at least I went home. And then that was the mm -hmm. end of it. I can't imagine if the last thing I saw trying to go to sleep was scrolling on my phone and seeing somebody say something nasty and then trying to show up for school the next day. So there has to be more of an yeah. appreciation of the social pressures, I think, because they're different now. For sure. And, you know, back in the day, bullying could stay sort of contained. It didn't make it better. But like, I mean, now it could quite, a, a rumor could be viral and quite literally be global mm -hmm. <laughs> in minutes and you cannot retrieve it. And so you potent, there's potential for something completely fabricated to slander you worldwide in minutes. So a lot of times people like to compare today's technology with, oh, well, you know, it was pretty crazy when the pencil came on the scene too. That radically changed how we lived. Well, that is true, but nothing can compare to the, the magnitude and scope of what this technology can do. I mean, you could be destroyed in minutes. <laughs> well, let's see. I want to wrap up since you said you're an English major and you studied studied yeah. education. I just I'm a bookworm myself. I just have to know one of your top give me give me a couple of your of your top top books or maybe something that's even recent. That like everybody everybody should be reading. This is one of the best books I've read in a while or maybe one of your favorite from when you studied. Besides the uh besides the raffle, of besides course. Rich. The besides the raffle. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. I love that. Yeah, the raffles, the raffles, a good one. Um, I have in recent years, well, first, like back in back in the day, I would say Catcher in the Rye, okay. you know, for sure. And then The Stranger by Camus was a big one for me. And then at some point in about the last decade, I have really developed an appreciation for Stephen King. And the thing is, is like, you know, I, I know that um, it's easy to write off those writers as, you know, the mass paperback. I do question myself how he can write something that's 400 pages long and then the next month write another one. Um, but there's a caliber of writing that goes on with him consistently that is masterful. And his book on writing yes. is actually a really good book. It's it's a must read. It's a must yes. read for any creative. I'm not just talking about writers. Any creative for must sure. read on writing, bro. I read it. I've read it a couple times. His wife found yeah. like dug out of the garbage. Carrie, was that the, the short story? Oh. Yeah, that he was going to toss that. And oh my God, I can't even imagine. Carrie's amazing. Yeah. Go, re go revisit Carrie as a piece of literature uh sometime soon and just be in awe i mean so uh it's just it's incredible how somebody at his level that you kind of associate with like the budweiser or mcdonald's of like it's just like superfluous or ubiquitous i should say it's ubiquitous it's just uh it's amazing how masterful he is in terms of new books I read something recently, the the vegetarian, mm -hmm. and the the author. I think her name is Han Lee, maybe or maybe her last name is Han. Um, and then I just bought a book, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, that looks really cool. I haven't started it yet, but you mentioned flash fiction, and for a while. Um, the reason I got not just into English education, but I had an emphasis in creative writing was because of flash fiction, specifically an author, Amy Bender, who is just like one of my favorite authors of all time. 
she wrote a collection of flash fiction called The Girl with the Flammable Skirt, and it's just pure genius. And there's another dude named Barry Yorgrau who does like one paragraph flash fiction that's amazing. But I really love flash fiction. I love magical realism. Did you hear this news about Roald Dahl, about them trying to change some of the language in his books to be I less did. offensive? I did, yeah. <laughs> and I also... I also saw a number of places that were trying to ban his books just in general. And then there was one book of his in particular that was a target. And I can't remember which one it was, but yeah, it's just amazing to me. Like I, I feel like you can find something offensive in almost anything and uh, stuff that's been written in the past should be just preserved and learned from, you know, I don't yeah. know. Rich, Dude, thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you for the really kind words. I'm seriously still like walking on a cloud for all of the nice things that you've said about me. You really are a good friend. You've had an impact on my life. I'm glad I've had a positive impact on your life. You've been a great fan of the show. Would love to continue these conversations. And if there's other things that you want to, if we went down a couple of paths here today that you want to come back and explore, please let us know. We'd love to have you. This conversation has been awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity, y'all. No, man, for sure. You know, it's a really cool experience. I've never had to speak to anybody where like I've crossed the two compartments. You know, like I spoke earlier about how I compartmentalize the two parts of my life. I've never really married them in a conversation. So hopefully it was uh, coherent. Dude, you were dropping yes. you're dropping some serious not like a jaw-dropping knowledge. I mean, that honestly that's what this show is about. Like Bring your passions, bring your day job, bring the thing you talk about. Let's talk about it. Let's have a conversation. Let's tell us something that we don't know. That's the premise of the show is to learn what we we know or to, to learn what we know what we, when I'm terrible. Well, at we our, didn't know. We didn't know. <laughs> See, so there you go. Yeah, she's actually the marketing genius on this. <laughs> and remember, when you're stuck, break the rule and break it. Yeah. I love it. Thanks, man. Good is in the Details is produced by Dr. Gwendolyn Dalski and Rudy Salo. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're enjoying the show, please scroll down to the bottom and hit that five-star review or leave a review. You can find us on Instagram, Good is in the Details Pod. Take a screenshot of your favorite episode and tag us. We'd love to hear from you. Or if you would like to sponsor a show or potentially be a guest on the show, get in touch. Good is in the Details Pod at gmail.com. And you can join our book club and get extra content on our Patreon patreon.com slash good is in the details. Okay. Until next time. Bye. That was a great show.